0: Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. I folks, Mike here quick mention that I had problems with my microphone during part of this recording and the audio quality, at least from my side, is rather poor. It gets significantly better about halfway through the podcast. Apologies. Hopefully I've tidied it up a little bit and removed a lot of the echo and the tinniness, so (laughs) it's even worse when you're listening to your own voice, believe me. Okay, enjoy. Greetings everybody and welcome to the Stargate archives. Something new this time, I'm actually going to talk about an episode of Stargate, instead of an episode of Legend, the quite magnificent Richard Dean Anderson sci-fi-ish adventure western that he released in the mid-90s, which died a death after half a season. Anyhow, I promised I'd be back with Stargate, here I am. And I've got a guest. Tim, welcome back.
1: Hello! And also, can I just say, I'm marvelling at the notion that Richard Dean Anderson did something that wasn't Stargate or MacGyver? Amazing, isn't it? The gasp. With John Delancey. You think, how could it go wrong? I mean, just that pedigree alone should have ensured at least a couple of full seasons.
0: Yeah. Times were different back then. The American uh, viewing public were just not interested in a sci-fi type western. How things change, eh,
1: Joss? <laughs> oh, too soon.
0: <laughs> okay, then. It is the guest's choice. What have you picked, Tim?
1: I have gone for, you know, just going to preface this with, there are a lot of options. I have gone with an episode from Season 5, which, to be honest, again, is pretty strong on candidates, but I've gone with Between Two Fires.
0: Kind of the final part of an unofficial trilogy, if you big picture-wise.
1: And also, I think it's one of the few episodes of Stargate Certainly of SG one or Atlantis where my actual draw my actual jaw dropped and you're like, okay, they've actually done something genuinely surprising here. Yeah. Because you know, late nineties, early two thousands sci-fi, it's good, but it's sort of got a predictability to it. There's a very definite formula to follow. Every so often though, they'll lob that curveball in. I guess that's one of the benefits. of so
0: If you're on TV long enough, if you've got a fan base that's big enough, you can drop characters or story elements into the narrative, ignore it for a year or so, bring it back a bit, build it up just enough so when the time comes, you can do something drastic and you get that impact, rather than introduce somebody at the beginning of a 42-minute episode and kind of write them off at the end. and You're never going to get the same amount of impact as when you build a character or a people.
1: Hate to fall back on it because, you know, I typically enough, you know, O'Neill and cliches, but it's the original Star Trek redshirt phenomenon. Yeah. No one gives a crap because you've never met these people before. The writers didn't even feel them important enough to give them a name. So I don't care if oh look, Kirk's lost another red shirt. And also the whole redshirt people go on about the whole redshirt thing, but given that red shirts would also include Security. It's sort of, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's sort of in the job description of security that when things go bad, it's likely to go bad for you. Yeah. Because your job is to be on the front line of bad.
0: Well, you can't really complain about being shot at if you join the military and get deployed.
1: Hmm. That's, that's so you know the point. when nameless character that's only been introduced half an hour ago suddenly dies, it's difficult to feel anything other than oh well. There's another one. Yeah even if it's not necessarily a character you like, just a character you know and recognise that's been there enough that you think, "Oh, you're actually relevant. That's when things happen and you're like, oh, hello. That's always one of the
0: problems in the uh, slasher movies, horror films. They try the hardest to get you invested in the characters in the first 10, 15 minutes before they've got to start clean them off. And majority of the time, you're just cheering them on when they die. The only kind of connection you made is you don't like them, or they're stupid.
1: That's the thing, isn't it? You sort of, they spend that much time trying to make you care about Joe Bloggs and you know, Mr. X, it's like at this point, in most slasher films, up until like maybe the last 15-20 minutes, I'm normally on the side of the slasher, because that's the character you have the most screen time with. Yeah, It's like, yeah, okay, I know you are supposed to be the bad guy, but I've seen more of you than any of the other characters, and let's be honest, if you're Freddy or Jason or Michael Miles or any of the others, you're the face the franchise is built on. (laughs) True. So, yeah, I'm going to support you until you actually come against the actual person I maybe like.
0: Yeah, just careful. I mean, the original Halloween... A modern audience would go, oh, it's a bit slow-paced, isn't it? It drags a bit. But no, they took the time to set the scene, introduce the characters. Even some of the, well, you didn't really get to know many of the, the boyfriends or the younger male, except the fact that most of them were sex-crazed and had no stamina whatsoever. You got to know the main female characters, so when they started getting bumped off, you knew who they were. Mm. Podcasting, the home of nitpicking.
1: Wow. And also, this has got to be the best derailment ever, because we've not even... No. (laughs) I swear, every time you invite me on one of these, there's a thought thought afterwards, like, oh, God, this isn't going to be a quick one, is it?
0: There were benefits in doing a commentary start. (laughs) You you had 42 minutes, and that was it.
1: (laughs) Yes. Can't get distracted too much, because by the time you get back on track, oh, the episode's finished. Yeah. Oh, damn.
0: As Tim says, between two fires, season five, episode nine of Stargate SG-1. Some I say trivia, but facts more like premiered in the US August twenty fourth, two thousand and one. We got it in the UK October thirty first, Germany June the twelfth, two thousand and two, and Japan April the seventh, two thousand and three. So it took a while to propagate across the world. This episode was written by Ron Wilkinson. He wrote uh, four other episodes of SG one, as well as providing stories for two. He was also the story editor for season five. Wrote for Voyager and TNG as well. So. uh, Sci fi pedigree there. Director William Geraghty, 12 episodes of SG1. Also worked on MacGyver, uh, did a couple of episodes of Legend as well, more recently Smallville and Edgemond. So, uh, while not not the mainstream writers and directors that Stargate SG1 kind of repeatedly went to, a couple of old hands, at least, One of the beauties of Stargate as well, doing it on the podcast. I suppose if you do a a long-running podcast for any show, you start recognising a lot of the crew and then you see them popping up all over the place. I mm-hmm. watched watch Homecoming on Amazon Prime, which was produced by John G. Lennick very busy man in the Stargate franchise.
1: Yeah, that's, that's de- definitely a name I recognise popping up in sort of opening titles.
0: Yeah. I subscribe to the Hallmark channel on Amazon. You see so many people like you don't. Christmas movies, romance movies... The plots are interchangeable. They, seriously, they are interchangeable. But the carriages and some the actors are good. So I keep paying my four pounds ninety nine a month.
1: And to be honest, anything science fiction shot in Canada. Oh yeah. You're going to recognise a lot of people by name and by faith.
0: <laughs> right, between two fires, and we open up with a previously seen from Pretense and Enigma, which makes a lot of sense, really. Yes the two episodes that featured the Tolan, and particularly Nareem, we get the courtyard of the Simon Fraser University, which has doubled for so many things in science fiction
1: television. Well, I'll be honest, I was sort of looking at it today and I was thinking, you think I would remember them shooting SG-1 in Milton Keynes?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of concrete, a lot of angular architecture. This university is rather unique. We're in a courtyard, we see SG-1, We're at Omok's funeral. Omok, originally played by Tobin Bell. One of those characters that was interesting because it came across very sour, very judgmental, awkward, didn't smile a lot.
1: Which, again, I think is kind of the strength of the writing of Enigma. Because initially, you think you know exactly where you're at. It's like, okay, so Nareem is going to be the good guy alien of the week. Omok is most definitely going to be the villain of the piece. Yeah. And then you get just a little bit in further and you think, no, they're just doing good cop, bad cop. He's not actually the bad guy. He's just grumpy. And
0: Nareem is a bit naive, maybe. A bit more, obviously, more open, more accepting, but...
1: Well, I won't phrase it exactly the way I was, but let's be honest. For Enigma, Nareem is not thinking with the big... <laughs>
0: Yeah, fair enough. You know, he's, he's at death's door and he opens his eyes and there's Sam Carter looking down at you.
1: Okay. I, hell, I, I I'm not saying I disagree with his choices. I'm just, you know.
0: <laughs> Fortunately, Stargate wasn't the usual run-of-the-mill show, so when you get the appearance of a big cat, the jokes don't go along the pussy route, but more the Schrodinger's path. Yeah. Even in this today's climate, I can see many a CW show going down a totally different path.
1: Yeah, they're less worried about subtlety now, aren't they?
0: Even now, though, you know, we don't get a Mrs. Locum anymore. I mean, that woman went on about a cat in so many things.
1: Mm-hmm. I've seen
0: episodes of that, like, not the remake, the originals, and you just slightly thinking, oh, God, no. I, <laughs> think, oh, God. I think the
1: funny thing about that, as the line is delivered, you can see the look on everyone's face, and you can tell the actors are thinking, this is it, this is the last one they're going to let us get away with. After that, nope, they're going to put the foot down, but nope.
0: It was a different time. And if you haven't seen Are You Being Served People, I'm sure there's clips on it on YouTube.
1: It was a product of Britain in the 70s, what can we say?
0: (laughs) Oh dear, and there's still people that look back and think the good old days. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right.
1: It's one of those things, in hindsight, was it incredibly inappropriate is kind of a given but at the same time, I think they are still watchable because the comedy isn't mean-spirited. Yeah, it was never nasty. I can
0: remember sitting down to watch some On the Buses, and I could not watch it. It just grated me. I can remember watching it as a kid, but when I came to watch it again as an adult, I thought, no, this humour is not right. There is a nastiness, a level of sexism, racism to it that I just thought, no, this is wrong. Hmm. Right, another cracking diversion. Let's get back to Stargate SG-1. Yeah. (laughs) Jack is rather surprised when he learns that Omok actually kind of respected him and the rest of uh, Stargate Command. Very surprised, because he didn't really uh, express those feelings when he was alive.
1: And also, it has to be said, huge points to all of the team on that one, because their facial expressions... When reem reveals that Omak actually respected the hell out of all of them, they're all like, us? Him? Really?
0: Yeah, he never really showed it very much, did he? No, no.
1: <laughs> Quite the opposite. Is this one of those cases where we killed the character off because the actor was dead, or we just couldn't get hold of him? I meant to look this up beforehand, because normally, when you ki- normally in science fiction, when a character dies off screen, it's usually a reflection of the actor has passed.
0: Well I know he's very much alive, uh, but maybe he'd began the Saw series, so his price went up, he was a busier actor, a smaller part in a TV series shot in Vancouver, maybe not as appealing.
1: If I was more professional at this, I would have looked this up beforehand, but if you've listened to me, you know I'm not that person. (laughs) According to Google, he is very much still alive.
0: I mean, recently he did some voice work on The Flash.
1: Oh, there you go. I have learned something. Decent actor is still alive. Always a good thing to find out in 2020.
0: We've had a usual amount of the famous and the respected past this year, even without COVID.
1: Funniest thing I found out about Sean Connery the other day, which is a thing I genuinely did not know, he actually turned down a role in The Final Frontier to be Indy's dad. Yes. Which is so good because he was going to be cast as Zybok. He could have done it
0: to perfection, but... He
1: could have done it, but at the same time it would have been really disconcerting to hear him keep saying Spock. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, you, you go and be Indy's weirdly Scottish dad. I'm, I, I can cope with an Irish Romulan, thank you very much, Picard, but a Scottish Vulcan might be too much. Yeah,
0: I picked up a bit of an accent on Nimbus 3. You know how it is.
1: <laughs> anyway... Aggressions. Stargate. The thing yeah.
0: we're here... Th- Counselor Travelle, she's acting very friendly. As we know from the previous two episodes, the Tolan do not share their technology because of an unfortunate event in their past.
1: Really? They, they don't they don't share their technology? I'm sure they've never mentioned anything about not sharing technology. <laughs> this, this is news to me.
0: They've been used quite frequently for story plots that revolve around technology and the acquiring thereof. But she's very friendly. She even says you know... Maybe a little bit of movement on that front. You can almost see the alarm bells going off, especially Nareem. He's, he's totally perplexed. You know, you know, a major political change just because Omerk is dead. It has died.
1: She's one of those people that, as soon as you see her, you have feelings, and they're not positive feelings. <laughs> but when she's when she is air quote nice, it comes across as so creepily insincere. That you're just like, this ain't going to be good, is it?
0: Yeah, she's a granny you don't really want to visit on a Sunday afternoon. D- Whatever d- you do, don't take the sweets,
1: she offers. <laughs> yes, she's the one that you invite for Christmas, praying she'll say no.
0: <laughs> but Be nice, because she's loaded.
1: Yes, it's like, how much, how, how much <laughs> longer are you here? No, I don't mean in this house, I mean on this planet. How much longer? <laughs> and I am still in the wheel, yes? Trevel is played
0: by Marie Stillen. She was in three episodes of SG-1. She's also been in the Commission, 21 Jump Street and Andromeda. Still very much alive as well.
1: It's unfortunate that that's a caveat you've got to put on these things now, <laughs> yes. isn't it?
0: Well, unfortunately, like Trek, you know, you get to the point where you think, we could be losing some of these people.
1: A lot of people that revolve with me Stargate... About... I'm a fan of Babylon 5. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That shows Kurt...
0: There will come a time when everybody involved in that has passed on, and it's all just, you know, the viewers remembering it, and then their children, hopefully, you think, hopefully, they'll live on in, you know, they left something behind which people can enjoy generations on, and not complain about the bloody CGI. They did have much money Live with it.
1: They did the best with what they had, and considering what they had wasn't much, what they've done is pretty damn good.
0: Yeah, considering their entire budget was the catering budget for DS9, how oh dare ds not complain? Why, <laughs> that... <you? laughs> Right then, speaking of budget, we hear the sound of the Stargate. We do not see the Stargate. Obviously because Toland designed and built their own Stargate, which was totally different from the gate that normally travels for those on-location shots. So they were saving a bit of money just by having the sound effects, and it ain't We don't really need to see the Stargate all the time
1: i must say, especially as when we did get a glimpse of it in pretense. It just looked a bit nav. Yes, it was very spindly. Kind of looked like it was made out of C3 plastic, as I recall. And you're like, it doesn't look very, way more advanced than the ghouls, so obviously our version of a Stargate's going to be like... I mean, no, it's summed up when the fact O'Neill takes a look at it and goes, eh, ours is bigger.
0: <laughs> SD1 walked through the gate, off camera. And the Nareem approaches Sam, claps their hands... Subtle pass of something as two guards. Keep a watchful eye in the distance. So right there and then we think something's going on here. Something beyond what we've seen.
1: And what amazes me is you've got two Toland-like security guards standing just off of them. There's no way one of them does not clock Sam's reaction to something being put in her hand. That sounds wrong out of context, but trust me, it's not quite as dodgy as my badly phrased putting it.
0: It would probably have made more sense for... Narim to Pugger, if they know that maybe there was something going on there i mean talana is not a big place no so you know oh Narim, yeah didn't you have something going on with that person from, that was that planet who
1: huh? ain't she hang on ain't she the one that gave him the cat yes exactly thing, that thing that keeps coming into my garden yes <laughs> damn you woman
0: yeah whatever happened to schrodinger well, but Schrodinger, you're know, kind of the point, isn't it, really? <laughs> Anyhow, we jump to the SGC. They come through the Stargate. The three lads, they're off. They, they're off to get a cuppa. Sam kind of draws them back, opens a palm. A nice little CGI hologram. Nicely done. Very subtle. Earth is in grave danger. When isn't it?
1: At which point you'd be like, oh, God, why is it always Earth? There are, like, seven... Maybe eight other planets in this solar system, depending on how you think about Pluto. Why can't one of them be in danger for a change? Can't I have the week off?
0: Exactly. We're not bothered about Mars. You can have Mars. You oh, no, we watched an episode of Red Dwarf. We're going to play billiards to include the solar system. you're the cue ball. So, the theme plays. Yes, folks, we're about, what, five minutes into the episode? Woo-hoo. This is going well. Briefing room. Worth noting that there's a commentary track for this episode. Director William Geraghty, DP Jim Menard, and the VFX producer James Titchener, they're all involved in it. They had the running joke about how difficult it is to film in the briefing room to do something different. They always do a decent job. We all know that the briefing room is basically a table in a rectangular room. Lots of glass around, so you've got to be careful about reflections. Funky spiral staircase in the corner.
1: I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, whether it be that or any of the briefing rooms in Star Trek, there's only so much you can do when the scene is X number of people sat around a table delivering chunks of exposition. Yeah. There's only so many ways, so many angles you can shoot that.
0: Yeah, there's really no point trying to be clever about it. Just don't do anything stupid. If nothing else, like William says, you keep the camera moving. You cut between the characters. Don't just do a single wide shot. Yes, it's cheap, it's quick, but it's going to bore your audience. In the briefing room, they mentioned the fact that there weren't very many people at the funeral. And, of course, it was for O'Mot.
1: I love the fact that the guys are not long dead and O'Neill's still taking shots. (laughs) It's like, Jack, he's gone, you've won.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you outlived him. (laughs) So there will be quite a few briefing room scenes, so we'll jump straight back onto Lana we get a map painting of the Ion Cannon, one of them. Titles come up between two fires, and we jump into a very snazzy-looking office. A lot of drapes looks a bit... I suppose if you put a few pillars here, you'd say it looks a bit Roman.
1: Base Romans!
0: Yeah. <laughs> Travel is there, talking about discussions with the Tularan High Council, the Courier. Basically, the with the death of O'Mark, the political winds are changing, the balance of power is changing... They're more open to trading, resources, technology, Trinia in particular.
1: Don't you just love it when the one person that's being a stick in the mud and making things difficult dies? (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) Yes, also, it's now going to be a golden age because so-and-so's dead. But we liked him, we respected him. Then he's dead and gone. We will put monuments up to him and decorate them with flowers because this will be a golden age because he's dead.
1: We will honour his legacy by doing the exact opposite of what he would want us to do, but in his name!
0: Yeah. And I like the fact that while they're in the middle of this conversation, she then pauses them and presses a few buttons and, oh, I'm just turning off the security devices. I need a private conversation. Off the record.
1: At which point, if the red alert klaxons weren't already blaring, they should definitely be starting up. As soon as anyone like that wants to go off the record, you like... If you're
0: talking to a politician, especially somebody who's pretty much the head of state, you want everything notarized recorded even, just to cover yourself. Mm-hmm. For all you know, she's got a black market deal for Trinium, and she's got a few spare iron cans she wants to shift off the back of a lorry. Basically a saving face maneuver. They don't really need the Trinium, but we'll use that as a reason for the trade. Everybody wins.
1: And, you know, we're going to go from, no, we're not going to give you even the smallest piece of technology to, yeah, sure, we'll give you a, as O'Neill puts it, a honking great space gun. I think as well as, as the hook, though, that works really well, given that we have seen how effective the ion cannons are.
0: Yeah, that is true. They have been proven to be very, very effective against But attacks. The
1: prospect of getting one of those is impressive. I mean, to be honest, you're offering O'Neill a big gun. His eyes are always going to light up like a child at Christmas.
0: Look, you come back with an ion cannon, most we'll say the appropriations board are going to double your budget. It's going to go to 14 billion a year. You'll be able to open the gate twice as many times.
1: Ooh, we can switch the lights on and off just for the hell of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, get rid of those motion sensors. They're going to be on all the time.
1: And you can see Kinsey reading the budget reports. The veins on the side of his head getting more and more prominent. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, but we
0: can paint the stars and stripes on the side of the ion cannon. In God we trust. Even better. Right, we jump back to, uh, I suppose you could call it a quad, if it was a university. We get a very, very nice camera approach as uh, on a crane, the camera's on a crane, pans across the lake, and the one up the lake is, what would you call it? A water feature.
1: We'll go water feature. Covers a multitude of things. (laughs)
0: Yeah. It looks fantastic, but it was planned to be even bigger and better. Sam and Tilt were going to be uh, doing a walk and talk, The camera was going to keep pace with them, but uh, unfortunately it started to rain. And you can't really get a good reflection in water when it's raining. God damn weather.
1: Yeah. Frank, don't you realise we're trying to shoot here?
0: The crane, I assume, cost a reasonable amount to rent, so they got some use out of it.
1: One of those things, well, look, we bought the damn thing, so we might as well make use. Yeah, exactly. We've got this thing on rental for another hour, so. That's it. That's
0: one thing. With the producer, you know, actually on location, he's got his clipboard down. and Taking out the red pen every now and again, you go, oh dear.
1: All the things with the shiny bells and whistles on that we suggested we needed. Yeah, all of them. Well, all, yes, all of them. Now. Yep,
0: a lot of extras in this episode as well. You see plenty of people walking around in the background. And my guess is that they're all the same people doing a nice rotation, but variation in costume as well. A lot of greys, as Jack points out later in the episode.
1: Have you noticed, though, in sort of theming in sort of any of the Stargates, the sort of the, the high-tech species... Are all very much will wear clothes of one shade of colour. We're not gonna mix things up. We're gonna go all black, all grey, or all white. Other yeah. colours do not exist. Look
0: at the monochrome. Yeah. I suppose you, you can only really express your individual style on you know the patterns rather than the colours. And now Reem is there. He mentions that Omok seemed to be under a lot of pressure, not his easygoing self as he as he usually was. He's shocked that there's an idea that there's some sort of trade agreement between Earth and Talana.
1: I think that's one of the nice things about Nereen, though, is, yes, he does buy into the we should not be giving Earth advanced technology. You can tell he is genuinely concerned that he doesn't want us to go, hey, look at us, we've got this. Oh, dear, we've blown ourselves up with it. Yeah. He doesn't necessarily think we would. You know, the concern is there, and, you know... Nerim likes members of the human race. You know, he'd kind of like to not see them blown up. You may not know this, but we had a mild uh, panic just then.
0: Uh, everything seems to be okay. Nerim, played by Garwin Sanford. Three episodes of uh, Stargate SG 1, three episodes of Stargate Atlantis, as Simon Wallace. He's also been in When Calls the Heart, Arrow, and Eureka. Very familiar face in the Vancouver film industry, pretty good actor. As we were saying, he is one of the better. One of the better characters in Stargate in terms of he understands humanity, he understands what the SGC needs, even though he is ethically and morally bound to not be helpful. But he will try to do everything he can. He will probably provide information, he will be very pally and introduce certain members of the SGC to new technology and new ideas, although he does come across a little bit creepy later on in the episode. Yeah! (laughs) Right, let's jump back to the briefing room. They're talking about the ion cannon. One of the problems with this technology, you can't really reverse engineer it. It is way too advanced for Earth technology to be able to duplicate. So we've got to buy them as is. Puts the seller into a very, very good bargaining position.
1: Especially as we also have the problem, just one might not be good for kind of covering the entirety of the planet pretty much useless for guarding the planet one is i oh, know 38 in total <laughs> yeah and i love the fact let's not make it a round number no let's just make it a, uh 38 yeah that's a good number yeah and i also do love the very blink and miss it line going back to an earlier episode that yeah russia might not be happy with us having the only one of these on the planet <laughs> you think and hammond like yeah, relations with Russia aren't good. Not only Russia, even your allies wouldn't be very happy about that. Because obviously, if you've only got one of these things, are you going to be bothered about fending off an entire alien invasion of Earth, or are you going to focus on an alien invasion of the good old US of A?
0: <laughs> you want to get really worried and put it onto a satellite in orbit. Then, Russia and China have got something to worry about. Anyhow, Jack, and the general have a few words. Jack, of course, you know. Yeah, I'm not really very good at this sort of thing, but uh, you know, don't screw it up. And oh, was it these little chats always bring me great joy?
1: See, that's one of the thing. That's one of the things that I love about RDA's portrayal of O'Neill. Is I love how he plays O'Neill as dumbing down. Whereas the fact you know O'Neill has to be more intelligent than he makes out. Yeah. I mean obviously obviously not Carter level intellect. You know, when the eyes glaze over when she's rambling, you know that's genuine. That's just too much science. But all of the rest of it, you think, no, you, you you are a colonel, you have to be smarter than this.
0: Not only that, he's during his during his time on the front lines, he probably planned missions, he had to react, you know, on his feet, limited resources, he had to literally pull rabbits out of hats to get jobs done. On top of everything that he learned in the military, you know, combat, weapons, machinery, all that sort of stuff, the bloke is clever. Granted, his diplomatic skills really aren't the best. He does tend to speak his mind a little bit too often. He's got a commanding officer who understands that and gives him a lot of leeway. But Jack plays the game as well. He knows the general is giving him an out if he needs it. Mm. So there's no question that he's going to try his best, but if he thinks it's a bit dodgy he will run for the hills. As the General says, you know, this could be political infighting with the Talan, and we'll be fine. Or we could be walking into... You really don't know, so just play it by ear. I trust you, Jack. Off you go.
1: Which, again, though, I think is one of the great things in both the chemistry between the two actors, but also the way that the relationship between Hammond and O'Neill is written. It's Hammond does. Hammond knows Jack. He knows that he can send SG-1 into this situation and he knows that for all jack will play the fool and might not be as subtle as some people that works to his strength and if there is something going on he will pick up on it if he doesn't pick up on it you can be damn sure that one of the other three people with him will and will make damn sure he is told what is going on yeah because otherwise you would send ambassadors or you know we know that in previous episodes that there are sg teams whose sole function is to basically play diplomat you send one of those the fact that you are still sending sg1 more specifically jack o'neill for all his unique diplomatic stylings <laughs> he's the one sent he might not be subtle he might not be pretty but guess what sometimes situations don't need subtle or pretty it needs someone who will get the job done
0: exactly yep Right, back on Talana, Nareem intercepts SG1. Obviously, he's uh, he's looking into things a little bit more. He brings up the fact that every member of his people have uh, an embedded implant for health reasons, very high technology, uh, full monitoring, any problems within five minutes, medical professionals can be on the scene. My guess is that boring, catastrophic injury. People don't die of illnesses often on Talana.
1: Which makes the whole heart attack story suddenly seem a little bit more... um. Shall we be, say, shall we be kind and say dubious?
0: Yeah. I mean, he's shocked that it took the paramedics ten minutes
1: to get there. Unheard of. I'd pay ten minutes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now they are definitely putting question marks over the fate of Omok. We're back into the office. They're going to be doing a little bit of horse trading, Jack and Daniel. Oh, you know, uh, one ion cannon not very much and travel yeah we we talked about that we've got an idea oh what's that more iron cannons oh how many 30 8
1: <laughs> great writing great delivery by the two of them it's that initial hmm look on her face and then rather than being followed with get the hell out of my office it's like okay i'll, I'll take your request on and you're like excuse me and you are
0: Yeah, far too easy.
1: We've just walked into your office. We haven't told you we're going to offer you more trinium. We've asked you for an extra 37 of these giant space guns. And you're going to consider it? Yeah, when a deal sounds too
0: good, there's a problem.
1: (laughs) There really really is. I mean, you know, it's trite to say it, but when something sounds too good to be true, it's too good to be true. You know, be afraid.
0: Yeah, it's that simple. Right, so everything's looking on the surface good. We visit Nareem's dwelling, his home, and we get a very uh, familiar voice greeting Alexa, or the Siri, if you would, of the Talan people.
1: And it ain't Majel Barrett.
0: (laughs) No, it's not. Mm. Creepy Nareem obviously got a recording of Sam's voice from one of his many devices he showed her, and it is AI that controls all the... Entertainment systems, the heating, the communications is Samantha's voice. Don't blame him. If you're going to have somebody whispering things in your ear, why not have the person that you find attractive? No problem with that. But obviously, you must have known she'd have been visiting at some point. So maybe...
1: You know she's on the planet. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe reset it to factory (laughs) settings for just a little while. Yeah. But what gets me is when Sam's like, Is that my voice? And the room's like... Was hoping you wouldn't notice.
0: Yeah, doesn't it sound
1: different to you? No, no. <laughs> what gets me though is that Tilk says nothing. He just stands there being Tilk, and normally that's the moment where Tilk would Tilk would maybe be the one to actually break that initial silence and say, "Isn't that?" And then it's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, it's it's Sam's voice. I'm a I'm a giant space perv. Leave me alone. <laughs> We're investigating different wrongdoing." We'll come back to this, hopefully never, but definitely not now. Yeah.
0: They could have pushed that a bit further than they did, but we got a nice reaction from Sam, and I think that was enough for it. The Rim reveals a bit more of his research, and it points out that, at least in his memory, there's not been a recorded murder amongst his people. Potential for a omok being murdered, a political-motivated killing, obviously raises some concerns. He has access to the public records, and public records are indeed public. Every level of Talon government is recorded and released to the public. There are no secrets. Well, in theory, there are no secrets.
1: Read between the lines. (laughs) There are secrets, and they will be big secrets.
0: Yes, sometimes there's that much information available, you don't know when something's
1: been overlooked or misplaced or cut out. The more transparent people are in science fiction the more you know there is some deep, dark secret festering somewhere.
0: Yeah, it's almost like you say you're going to learn more if you've got a government or society that is very secretive, but you've got that function in place where you can gain access to something if you jump through enough hoops. Even some of the most brutal and fascist states love their paperwork. Oh, yeah. And in fact, lots of Nazis after the war really regretted keeping good records. I think there are certain nations and certain political parties at the moment who are spending a lot of time shredding documents, just on the off chance.
1: You never want to leave a paper trail.
0: No, no matter how proud you are of how you kept the trains running or anything.
1: By all means, keep the paperwork that has the trains on time. Yeah, not the manifest, that's all. Maybe what was on the trains, the destinations where they were, you know, death. Lose those papers, you know, don't fight that down. Especially with anything that requires a signature. It's like the bit in um, the Discworld book, Going Postal where the guy's accountant has done his job to the extent that he's actually filled in in the accounts ledgers the amount of money that have been paid for assassins to take out business rivals because he's the accountant, it's his job. (laughs) It just didn't occur to him that there are some (laughs) things you don't put in the official ledger.
0: Yeah, but at least you make sure you pay your taxes on it, don't you?
1: Oh, exactly, yeah. They're not going to get you that way.
0: right, well, worth noting that the apartment is actually an apartment in, I think it's South Vancouver. They didn't have to do a lot of set decorating. Most of that is as is. They did obviously have to hide a lot of the cabling and the the lighting, but interesting place.
1: Kind of works as well, because you don't imagine that Nareem's going to be, you don't imagine he's going to be a person with a lot of stuff.
0: No, no, he doesn't seem to be a collector or a hoarder of anything, really.
1: You very much get the feeling that, you know, if you were to see the inside of his house, it would be functional. Yeah. Not necessarily comfortable, but certainly functional. And then you get a look and it's like, okay, it's creepier than I expected. What with, you know, Sam's voice as Alexa. But this is basically what I was expecting.
0: They were a little disappointed that the plan was to have a very, very large flat panel display on the wall. Unfortunately, they couldn't really swing the cost of it, the the practicality of it. So they ended up with two little LCD monitors embedded in the wall. Not as impressive. And of course, there is, as we see later, an LCD monitor strategically placed on the dining table, wherever you want to put. It's not too low for a dining table. Anyway, we'll get to that a bit later. Again, budget sometimes controls what a director and a producer really wants to do to tell a story. We jump to uh, the quad. Dan and Jack are sitting against a pillar. We get a very nice circular pan of the two of them talking. Very simple, very effective.
1: I love that exchange when Jack basically says that this thing is getting worse by the second. And Daniel's like, but we're still going to try and get the guns. (laughs) And you almost want Jack to go, of course we're still going to try and get the guns, Daniel.
0: Guns, guns, guns. There's
1: nothing bad about
0: having guns.
1: You know, yes, I am 99% certain that this is all going to fall apart horribly. But at the same time, even if there's only a 1% chance that we can come out of this with a way of protecting Earth, we kind of have to not fold yet. We could really do with giant space guns that can destroy ghoul <laughs> chips. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but we have not stopped pissing off the ghouls. <laughs>
0: that,
1: is, that is true. And in recent memory, we have knocked out not one but two very, very big players.
0: Yeah, but the gold are like rats. You know, you think you've got one, then you hear the skittering behind the floorboards and you realise, uh, oh, there's another one.
1: Yeah, but I was thinking more from the point of how long are the system lords going to sit back and think, yeah, OK, they started as a little annoyance, but they've actually done a lot of damage to us now. We need to maybe f- decide that we've got a common enemy. How about we put all of our bickering and infighting on hold just long enough to find a way of wiping out their little planet that will not draw attention to the Asgard? (laughs) Yeah. Then we can focus on the backbiting and the political backstabbing that we're oh so good at. You know, taken out Apophis. They've taken out Cronus. They are not the small, inferior people we thought they were.
0: Yeah, something's going to have to be done about them. Maybe in this episode we will learn. Who knows? Right, we're back at Narim's. The voice system gets turned off. (laughs) Bless him. We get a look at the screen. Sam and uh, Narim are sitting on the sofa. They had to do a little bit of digital jiggery-pokery because at the time that was LCD screen and the uh, viewing angle was awful. Well, I do like the fact that it's a video doorbell.
1: Yeah, very nice.
0: Yep. What did I say? We got the guns.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's trying to work out who's got the best prize reaction. Carter or Nareem? Yeah. Carter's because it's very definite. Well, seriously? You two actually did something right? <laughs> and Nareem's is very definite. Hold on. One gun was bad enough. 38? Do you know how many times over you could kill yourselves with 38 of them?
0: That's like, it is, isn't it? It's like you're not giving technology to a state so that they can refine uranium. You're supplying them with the ballistic missiles, the submarines and the warheads.
1: I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's as much as Nareem Light trust, respects SG-1 and General Hammond, they're not talking about giving the guns and the technology to SG-1 and General Hammond. They're going to lose control of them very, very quickly. Yeah. And once they're in the hands of politicians... Uh yeah. All bets are off, kind of seems nowhere near oomphy enough a sentence, but at the same time
0: yeah. Yeah, I think this episode really does cement the Toland viewpoint on this technology via Nareem's reaction. He doesn't understand why his own people are doing this. It's so ingrained in their makeup,
1: in their psyche mm. that it's just unbelievable that, that anybody would even consider doing this. Like, we've been down this road before. We know where it goes. Yes, these are not the same people, but we've already established in our very first encounter with these people that not everyone, not, not all of them think like they do.
0: No, I mean, they spent time at the SGC. You know, Omok knows he might have respected many
1: of members of the SGC, but he probably met a lot that he thought, uh, no. <laughs> no. I'd say we know for a fact he met one for definite that he did not respect. <laughs>
0: yeah. But who does?
1: It's that, it's that wonderful thing that comes up quite a lot, you know, when sort of O'Neill sort of says, Look, you know, we'll do this, blah, blah you know, we'll be fine, yeah, we'll agree to this. And they will call him and it's like, Yeah, but you can't speak for your entire race. Yeah, you can be pretty confident that anything you say to us, Hammond will back. But even Hammond does not speak for the entirety of your race. I would love if I could take what you're saying at face value, but we both know that you're stretching things quite a lot here. Yeah. And I'm just supposed to be comfortable with the fact that, yeah, I might be handing the technology. Well, actually, no, I'm not handing the technology over to you, is it? Because those guns are not going to fit through the gate. And even if they do, once they're in the SGC, what, are you going to open up the roof and get them out? Because people are going to see that. There's going to be a lot more than SGC personnel involved in this, and I don't know that I can trust the people outside the SGC. Yeah, you just imagine, if they had got
0: their hands on the guns, the whole Stargate would have to be revealed to the world, because there is no way you you could keep 38 military installations like that secret. Nope. narin has been looking at the records. Two months ago, there was an unscheduled ion test. It caused a lot of concern within the courier. Obviously, this is a point where he points out that, you know, if you think maybe somebody killed Omot, how is it such a stretch to believe that maybe records were missing or manipulated? But the complexity of the public record-keeping means it's virtually impossible to actually erase the protest
1: about the ion protest. Joys of red tape. Yes. We can delete references to what was complained about, but we can't do anything about the complaint. It gets easy to everybody. <laughs> There's janitors who got the email.
0: <laughs> you go, what is
1: this? Yeah. Little Billy down the road is just trying to download his weekly copy of the Beano. He got a copy <laughs> of that complaint. Yeah.
0: Damn, the fired iron gun and then I missed it. Back at the briefing room, like I said, I said we are going to spend a lot of time in the briefing room. And there's an evil conspiracy. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah. And they're right. There is a conspiracy. They're not quite sure what it is or exactly who's doing it. But there is one. And they take a reasonable action. The Talon want Trinium. We can give them Trinium. We can also mark it with an isotope and then click. look, we're humans. We're not that good at refining this. You know, take this. You can refine it that little bit better if you need it. But until Which then... Is,
1: well, you've got to really love, because that's very definite. They think we're inbred hits. Yeah. So let's play that card, because it's only going to confirm to them what they think they already know. Yeah. And also, let's be honest, this is very much one-way traffic, information-wise. They don't need to ask why we want giant, great, big space guns capable of blowing up alien ships. Kind of speaks for itself. that Poland have been very, very vague about what they actually want to do with the Trinium. So, you know, maybe a little bit of trust, but verify would be a good thing.
0: Yeah. We're back at Narims. They bring Narim up to speed. He's having, as you would expect, a lot of ethical issues about being in the position where he cannot trust his own government. He is in a position where he may have to commit treason to find the truth. You could argue that he is doing the It's the old whistleblower problem. You know, someone can come out and reveal the truth and be 100% right. They're doing the right thing, but their life is going to be ruined regardless. Even if everybody agrees you did the right thing, but, oh, no, we're not hiring you no no
1: i love the way as well with you've got because you've got you've got this instance and one a little bit later with sort of they struggling with their ethics and i love the fact that you've got two very different approaches from jack in dealing with this situation the first one in this one a little bit more subtle where it just basically says look we are where we are because you came to us i get that you're struggling but you put us on this path so you know yeah. Okay. Maybe we've maybe us tagging the Trinium you didn't see coming, but you started us on this road that's led to this, to this, to this. Kinda can't back out now. You got us here, so let us do what us. Yeah. And when we get to it, we'll get to the the less subtle but somehow more Jack O'Neill approach.
0: <laughs> yes. At this point, the only way they're going to get the information they need is access Travel's office. That's going to be an issue. But fortunately, the HR and security personnel of the courier are a little bit uh, sloppy when it comes to revoking dead people's personal access codes. Fortunately, uh, OMOX codes still work, so they'll be able to bypass security and get into the office.:
1: Well, uh, why do you need to revoke a dead person's access? It's not like he's going to need it) <laughs>
0: How many movies and films have relied on that trope?
1: I tell you, if I ever become CEO of Evil Incorporated, the first thing I'm going to do when employees die, null and void all of their clearances, I ain't falling for that.
0: (laughs) Scrooged when he got rid of uh, Elliot. Kick him out and, oh yeah, cancel his Christmas bonus. (laughs) no messing about. We're in the office, we see the curved display again, which I've got to say, looks fantastic.
1: Kind of get the feeling it will have been a bastard to shoot.
0: Yes. They do mention that in the commentary. Because it's a curved surface, actually getting the CGI to look the correct ratio was very, very tricky.
1: Other thing I like about this is again, because obviously we spent most of the we spent most of the episodes with SG one broken up into two teams. I love the fact that you've got a very subtle switch in this bit though. It's like yes we've broken up again, but we've ever so slightly switched up the rotor. Up till now you've had Jack and Daniel together. And Sam and Tilk. Yeah. Now all of a sudden we're just going to swap Tilk and Daniel around. We're not specifically putting the two most action-oriented members of the team together for any specific reason. Complete coincidence, honest. For no random reason, we are just going to just amend the team assignments slightly. But I'm sure there's nothing behind it.
0: <laughs> they gain access to the actual files they're after. It shows that there was a gold ship in orbit. The ion cannons fired on it as they were supposed to, and the ship wasn't damaged. And then just flew away.
1: At which point you're scratching your head. Which is the more bizarre occurrence: the fact that the Tolan couldn't destroy a gold ship, or the fact that, having withstood the attack, the Gould just seemingly went, "Oh well, that was fun. Right, off we go." Tralala.
0: <laughs> yeah, if I were in a rim, I'd be terrified over reading that. Because whenever your military policy is defence, every bit of technology we put into a defensive system, and all of a sudden that doesn't work anymore. And you learn it this way, not through the usual channels. You learn it because your government have kept it secret.
1: It's one of those, it's like, it's not all of the missing puzzle pieces, but it's definitely one of the pieces that you put it in place and suddenly things start to make sense. Because if the guns no longer are effective against the gold well, yeah, sure, fine, we'll let Earth have as many of them as they want, because, pfft, what the hell? Yeah. They're not actually going to do them any good.
0: There's still the question of, you know, the ethics and morality. They're still incredibly powerful weapons that they really don't want to see in the hands of anybody that that might misuse them, but it, there's still that question mark as why. <laughs> We're going to learn why in a bit, but, yeah. We get Jack and Tiltner. They're on an adventure together. They've got the phase device, if you recall from... Uh, Enigma, the one that Omar used to such great purpose in escaping the SGC time and time and time and time again.
1: Are we going to take said device away from you? Nah, we're just going to say, don't do it again. And you'll say, <laughs> I won't, incredibly unconvincingly. And then we'll act surprised ten minutes later when you do it again, rascal.
0: Yeah. Maybe one of the most disappointing moments of this episode is the idea that Jack and Tilk would have... Even pause about just holding hands to use the device. I know why it's there. In certain terms, oh, it's it's funny. Two two alpha males having to hold hands to use a piece of alien technology. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Oh, great. Now you go, come on, lads. Seriously.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things that it played fine then, has not aged well.
0: No. But they get through this wall, this barrier, into a wide open area. Which is actually the university cafeteria with a mat extension, and they see a, a lot of pieces of technology, freestanding devices, some sort of framework, a kind of a sphere inside of them. Something is certainly certainly suspicious in this storage area. We jump back to the office. First, a mention of our weapons of mass destruction, incorporating the phase shifting technology, which is part of why they need or Not need the trinium, but trinium is used in this technology. Makes you wonder if the existing supply of trinium has built God knows how many already, and they need extra trinium. It's serving a purpose. The trade is serving a purpose, not only to uh, get trinium from Earth, but, you know, maybe to give Earth a false sense of security.
1: Wonderful acting here. When you've got Nareem looking at the information on what's actually being built, and I love when he he jumps to the conclusion, ah, well... Obviously, this is what we're building as a replacement for the Ion Cannon. (laughs) Oh, poor Noreen. And Sam and Daniel and the entire audience is just shaking their head. It's like, no, Noreen, that's not what that's that's not what's happening. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you probably know that as well. You're just really not. You're just so uncomfortable with the prospect that trying to ignore it is is the preferable option.
0: You can't blame him. You would almost understand if he had a panic attack at this point or, you know, just totally collapsed. It's he so so wants to view his people as he always has, as, as paragons of virtue, as good people who Yes, they have incredible technology, they've got incredible weapons, but they're only used for defense. They are not an expansionist people, they don't go looking for combat. I'm sure like the Nox, like maybe Nox, they're probably a bit too secretive. Maybe like the Asgard, they will... I'm going to say humanitarian aid, but you know what I mean. Yeah. They will go out of the way to help people if they can. This is destroying his whole world for you. Yeah. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse so quickly. Oh, yes. Because comes travel with their armed security guards, and I basically wrote in the notes, which I will bleep out, Fuck me, it's Tanner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Of course it's Tanneth, Of course it's a Gould.
1: And, you know, in that fine SG-1 tradition, of course it's a Gould that we thought slash hoped was dead.
0: Yep. And he just stands there, his fancy outfit, smug look on his face, charming, polite. Ugh.
1: And don't you just want to hit him until he's <laughs> moving? The thing I love about this reveal as well is, while it's surprising, at the same time it shouldn't be. Because they more or less told us that he was alive at the beginning of the season when the Tok'ra come to Earth and say, look, planet exploded, fleet was destroyed, but we did detect a launch before that. Yeah. Now, Normally you'd think, okay, that would be Apophis, but we know it wasn't Apophis because Apophis is off in wherever the hell they got sent to. You know, he's he's fighting robot spiders, so we know it wasn't Apophis that escaped but your brain doesn't quite register that, oh, it must have been Tanith, until you then see Tanith again, and then you're like, they telegraphed this right at the beginning and still managed to knock you for six with it. That's impressive.
0: I know Peter Wingfield, the name. I know him from Highlander. So even though
1: his name pops up in the opening credits, you think, sometimes you really do wish they wouldn't do that. See, that's the thing, and that is a misstep, because I'm fairly certain as well, in the Jolinar's Memory two-parter, when the cliffhanger is, oh, look, here's Apophis, he's not dead after all's a prize. I'm fairly certain they put Peter Williams on the end credits.
0: They occasionally have done, yeah. I think they've got to get some sort of special dispensation from the the union, and not they? Something like that. Ah. Because there are certain things they have to do by contract wise and everything they have to meet, otherwise, the union is going to come down on them. It's like everything. It's like. Editors, writers, you know, if you write so much of a script, you've got to get billing, even if you maybe only ended up, you know, actually putting in two or three lines. If you, if it's above a certain threshold, you get billing as a writer.
1: Yeah, I'd forgotten the joys of that. Because otherwise, if you recognise the name, then you're sort of head-scratching, and you're like, OK.
0: Worth mentioning now, though, that Peter Wingfield, who he still occasionally pops up in an acting role, but the last few years he's been studying medicine, currently... Uh, Cedars-Sinai, wait for it, cardiothoracic anesthesi- th- anesthesiologist. That is what he is currently training.
1: That's a little bit of a jump from playing a guy with a snake in his head.
0: Yes, but you've got to admire anybody that has a career, then goes and does something that is infinitely more complicated, infinitely more demanding. You know, being an actor, working 16 hours on set for four or five days a week, just to produce a 42-minute piece of television that people will watch and maybe forget until the following week. But committing yourself to becoming
1: a doctor, it's a level of, well, you've got you've got to respect him. You you really well, do. absolutely. It. And to be honest, you know, beyond anything else, anyone in the current climate that is working in any way, shape or form connected to any kind of healthcare service, hats off to you because, damn, I wouldn't want to be doing it.
0: No. Yeah, another diversion, folks. <laughs> Which, fortunately, really, you think about it, Jack is the diversion. Because he walks into Nareem's home, big as life. Anybody here Anybody here? And the guards leap out, only to be taken out by Dilk.
1: Astre said, when O'Neill is anywhere, he's not the quietest of sort of personalities. <laughs> no. But when he walked into a room loudly, it's like surely the security guards knew that they were looking for two people. <laughs> yes. You'd be like, okay, there's one of them.
0: Yep, yeah, you're most one of them say. So. Right, Bob, you know. Wait. Don't jump out straight away. Wait till you see two. Wait two. for it. Wait. <laughs> no, Bob. <for> it. <laughs> oh damn, he's gone for it. I better not leave him out
1: there. Although you could have done. He says, "Well, he shot Bob, and then I got him." But it has to be said, it works out perfectly for Jack and Tilk because if they needed further evidence that something is definitely not right, armed guards at Nareem's house is probably going to clinch it for them.
0: Yeah, you pretty much know. Oh, they're on tools, now. <laughs> no more messing about at least they're going to learn the truth now really you know
1: they get taken i think we get a little bit more sort of gold glow thing yeah we do don't do because he explains why he's still alive oh yeah and you've also got the reference haven't you because it's where the first line of planet still isn't out for himself he's still playing second fiddle to another Goa'uld.
0: oh yes he's got a master <laughs> very star wars
1: I love that two-hander. Apparently the gold he serves has no name. And then, oh, he has a name. The light of you were just forbidden to know it. <laughs> I was like, you go,
0: come on, Tanith. We were doing this five years ago. Get up to speed, would you? You were treating us this way back then. Where are those? Where are those gold?
1: Oh, yeah, they're dead, aren't they?
0: They're dead. Yeah, the arrogance never really goes away with the, the system lords or their uh, the second-in-commands, the little minions.
1: This is the point, though, where you're starting to think we're dealing with something a little bit more serious than, the, let's, let's say, the original Apophis. Yeah. You know, back in the sort of the, the gold disco armor days, because <laughs> even sort of Tannith, sort of, hand device, rather than sort of the garish gold, it's that more sort of matte silver look. Yeah. And even the outfit, though still extravagant by most standards, it's pretty sort of tame for a ghouls.
0: Yeah, you, you've got the feeling that if you need to, he, he could shrug that off and underneath he's just basically got a
1: one-piece and he can he can dodge and evade as, as well as anybody could. Yeah, so, so, OK, I'm kind of getting the feeling we're, we're, we're looking at something slightly more, you know, double with the fact that, you know, he's rocking around in a mothership that's impervious to Poland weapons fire. We're dealing with something serious here.
0: He takes uh Salmon Daniel, Nareem makes a dash for it, phases through the wall and gets out. He meets up with Jack and Tilk, basically in a stairwell. <laughs> so this is where we get the mention of the, how do you know it was me? Well, you were wearing grey. The one in
1: grey? Yeah. The audience doesn't need it so much, but you need to have the exposition for Tilk and O'Neill because they haven't had it. It's just that, okay, so the Gul'der here, they're forcing us to make weapons, weapons which use the phase-shifting technology... And again, proving that he's not as stupid as he makes out, it's Jack that connects the dots. It's like, so weapons that could go through, say, an iris. Yeah. Yeah, well done. You're building weapons to kill us. Thanks, Nareem. Now's the part you're really not going to like. Please help us. <laughs> and this is where we get the slightly less subtle, but somehow more Jack approach to Narim's ethics. You know, obviously, Nereem does not want to exterminate Earth. F- aforementioned he respects us, and he actually likes some of us as well. But if he helps, he's basically painting a target on his own people. And, you know, he did have the very sort of puffed-up chest moment with Travel where he's sort of saying, well, you can't work with the ghouls. We would rather fight and die than work for the ghouls. And she's like yeah, it's easy to say that when you're not the one who's got to make the decision.
0: An ethical dilemma. We all know how we would like to respond, but deep down, we know that's probably not how we would respond.
1: I love the fact that Nareem is humble enough that he realises, yeah, okay, it's not so easy when you're the one who's got to make the decision. And then you just get Jack, like, Nareem, will you get your head out of your ass? We're here. My people, none of us deserve what's happening. You can't wipe out Earth. You know what's right and you know you know you know this is the right choice because it's not easy. You know, it's that age old the, the right decision's never going to be the easy one.
0: No, especially in this sort of situation. The consequences are gonna be dire. If he gives it any thought, he knows that his people are in a place now where they are gonna be subservient to the gold as long as they're useful. First moment they even balk at it, they will be wiped out.
1: Exactly. So at worst, Nareem is probably just beating that up. It's
0: a pity they didn't have any more colony worlds. You'd think in the galaxy that they live in now that maybe maybe having one or two worlds that are off the beaten track, off the Stargate network,
1: might be a a reasonable idea. Especially as this isn't the original Poland homeworld. Yeah, it, it's not the first time they've had to relocate. Have we not learned the lesson about keeping all of one's eggs in one basket? <laughs> Apparently not.
0: Right, so Tanith, again, he's kind of putting the pressure on Travell. They're going to meet the first delivery deadline. Obviously, now he's uh, added an amendment to the agreement. What's that Darth Vader phrase?
1: I was thinking the exact thing. I've modified the agreement for yeah. to modify it again.
0: Exactly. Yeah. See he wants a demonstration now. He wants one of the weapons sent to the SGC to well, depending upon how powerful this weapon is, it could do a good big chunk of damage to the Earth.
1: I think that's the genius of the plan though, isn't it? It doesn't need to take out half a continent. It just needs to take out the SGC. Yeah. Because at this point, the SGC is basically the problem. We don't have a Prometheus yet. We don't even really have the X 302. We've got those annoying four or five people teams that just keep running around, <laughs> making us look stupid. Yeah. One tiny, tiny little bomb. Oh, look, my problem has gone. Yeah.
0: yeah, granted, we're using a comparative nuclear weapon to destroy an anthill, but they're really annoying ants when you're on a picnic. Mm-hmm.
1: I love it as well when you've got, you try and have a little bit of sort of the ethical dilemma with Traval. With a, oh, you know what, we, we didn't, and Carter's, I'd love it, Carter just takes her off at the Like, no, You knew exactly what you were doing. You just didn't expect to be the one that had to pull the trigger.
0: Yes, and that makes a huge amount of difference. You can fool yourself if the blood isn't on your hands. We can look at our world now, and you can see the reports of what happens in countries across the globe. Whether they be Western democracies or third world dictatorships, and... We know tens of thousands of people dying every day through consequences we could easily, easily combat. But we don't see it. It's not in front of us. So we don't even have to think about it. So nothing gets done.
1: And again, it's that age-old, yeah, even if you weren't the one pulling the trigger, you've made bombs for the Goaul. What did you think they were going to do with them?
0: Oh, look, we've sold military supplies to Saudi Arabia. Oh, They've killed a thousand civilians on a raid with our bombs. Oh, never mind, we didn't do it. Yeah, we
1: didn't push, the, we didn't push no. the big red
0: button. No, our hands are clean. And ethically and morally, no, they're not. But legally, they are. That's the world we're living in, unfortunately. Anyhow, Tilk and Jack, they, uh, they're they back at the weapon storage. They're looking to see if they can do anything about it. Unfortunately, they get jumped by a hell of a lot of security guards and they get taken to uh, Travel's to office.
1: Which automatically you would have thought. Is reuniting the entirety of SG-1 really the smartest play here?
0: <laughs> yes. It's like G-Force, you know, when they're all separate, they're not a problem really, but bring them together. <laughs> SG-1, all in the same place, as you say. rim isn't, though. Where's Narim?
1: But it's slightly odd, because according to this, Nerim's... he's with so... us. <laughs> ah, yes. I love Travel shock. She's going to try to play the, how. you know, that's totally, you can't do that, but it's like, excuse me, bitch, bombs (laughs) for the Goa'uld, murdering your own people to cover it up, and you're going to quibble that Nareem has removed his health implant.
0: I like the fact that earlier one of the guards actually questioned the idea of using that system to track people. Mm. And it makes you wonder if... Obviously, that sounds like he's not aware of what's going on behind the scenes. He's just doing his job as
1: Dravel tells him to. Even though in that scene... Raval is standing in front of the guy, while Tannis is sat at her desk. <laughs> yeah,
0: thinking, "Hey, hey who's he? Uh, don't worry about it. He's not dressed. No, in, seriously, he's who's not he? dressed
1: in grey. You've got one of
0: us. I've never seen those colours before. We find out what noreen has been up to when one of the ion can's uh, rear lines brings its muzzle rather. In a downward sloping angle, you <laughs> think, like,
1: like you ain't going to shake out many spaceships like that.
0: No. And it opens up on the weapon storage depot, which is remarkably close to uh, the main building complex for my liking.
1: Yeah. And at the same time, I'm sat there thinking, there were supposed to be a lot of those in that building. Yeah. It wasn't all
0: that big a bang. I suppose you could argue that, like nuclear weapons, you can pretty much make sure a nuclear weapon won't go off without actually detonating it you know the support structure of the weapon itself the cores of the weapons are still there they just haven't gotten in the phase shifting technology anymore so in essence they're just a big bomb
1: because otherwise i was sat there thinking well the totaling were probably going to get their half handed by the gould anyway because i don't think the gould are going to be happy with that kind of explosive yield <laughs> I was like that's not <laughs> yeah. you haven't given them the good stuff have you
0: yeah yeah that's a, that's a good point you know thinking well we can do that already what are we buying them from these people for? Yeah, a shudder goes through the building, the extras don't notice a damn thing. The building goes off behind them but none of them move. Might have been useful if the director says, Fall to the ground, quick <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe a memo went round Solana, sort of look, the humans are here. There might be some weirdness. Just just run with it. It'll be fine. Yeah. It's just them.
0: But what you do, don't stand there looking at them as they walk by. That will just make them nervous. Especially the,
1: the big guy with the, don't, don't, just don't, 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 don't stare. <laughs> the next part of this offer theme, there's a part that I really like, and there's a there's a part that just grates on me slightly. The part I really like is when Travelle realises that game over, she's lost. It's basically just get out of Dodge now, run away, and take everyone with me. The part that grates me slightly is as they're running out, O'Neill very glibly is like, hey, where are you going? You know what's about to happen here, Jack. Maybe you want to dial the levity down just a couple of notches. You know what's about to happen and you know it ain't going to be good. Yeah. If Pan is on that planet, is Hatak or... He didn't... Odds are he did not get here via Stargate. Yeah. And if he didn't get here by Stargate... He probably came in something with a lot of firepower.
0: And of course, SG-1, they've got no
1: idea what's in orbit, because they came through the gate. Exactly, there could be there could be one mothership up there, or to be fair, the planet could be surrounded. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although at this point, as the episode has proven, doesn't really matter. All it now takes is one mothership, because the Poland can't do squats. The ion cannons, it's going to be like throwing rocks. And to be honest, Nareem has actually now destroyed all of the weapons they might have actually been able to use to defend themselves. So, maybe you don't want to be quite as glib. Yeah, but Jack is Jack No, That is true.
0: <laughs> right, they've got the phase shift, of course, even though you know they do get actually locked in. They have a little little CGI effect as uh, Jack touches the door. Nareem the gets them out of the office. We get a tracking shot as SG-1 and Nareem run through the quad. Lots of people panicking explosions in the distance then we kind of get a nice long shot we see a huge amount of building in the background not a map painting and the actual building itself the rim is staying behind you wouldn't blame him if he left but i don't think his moral fiber would let him
1: escape i do love that line where he's basically saying look my people are here because of me and again it also is you know the gate is the gate's going to be open for sg1 you're like i'm sure hammond's not going to mind if you bring back some house guests you can't save all of them but it's one of those things where even if you only save one it's a victory of a sort
0: any members of the the talon race would have been welcome on earth at the worst case scenario like they've done before you know give the knots a bell and you know can you take these people
1: i say or failing that okay maybe give it a couple of days got an alpha site
0: yeah exactly we need plenty of materials. Even if you don't want to actually, you know, set up shop with us, we can find some place where you can carry on your life. It's better than better than blowing up. Mm. But Narim is staying, as you say. He's taking responsibility for his own actions. I suppose you could argue that Travelle did the same, but she was willing to see tens of thousands, millions of people die using those weapons and justify it to herself that she's saving her people. Other people like Narim, he's not willing to go that far. He will say this line: "If we cross it, we are no longer the people we once were, and that is unacceptable."
1: Did you very nearly go, Patrick Stewart? Then the line must be drawn here. This far, no further. <laughs> no,
0: nah, there's only one person that can deliver that line.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we see poor Narim all by himself as. I do love that shot though, where he's just standing there, and yeah. you've got everything blowing up to hell behind him.
0: They actually toyed with the idea of bringing the explosion a hell of a lot closer to him, but then they thought, hang on a minute, if it's literally feet behind him, you wouldn't be able to justify the fact that he got a transmission out at the end.
1: Any closer than that, and it's going to be some random person we've never heard of doing that, isn't it? It's not going to have quite the same effect.
0: So as you one gate through before Talana is destroyed, fortunately, as we say, we get Walter's voice, incoming communication from the uh, to on a communications device, long-range communications device, not through the Stargate, because obviously the Stargate's destroyed. And it it breaks off in mid-sentence, which is what you would expect, but not what you'd think maybe a show would normally do.
1: You kind of expect the traditional sort of sci-fi of the time approach would be, okay. the homeworld's gone, but X many survivors managed to escape. We're not in a good state, but we're alive. Yeah. Not the Stargate's been destroyed, the is destroying the ships they attempt to escape, and then, as you say, the cutoff. The cutoff means one of two things. It means either the relay's been destroyed, or it means the source of the transmission's not there anymore. Either way, for the Tolan, it's not good. No, it isn't. And I think it's made better by that's the last thing you hear in the episode, that there's no additional dialogue from anyone else after that because you don't need anything else. No. Everyone in that room knows what that transmission cutting off means. No one needs to say, well, it's either this or that, because everyone is painfully aware of it's either this or that. And as much as we want it to be just, you know, a tech problem, we know it's not.
0: This is City on the Edge of Forever ending. No jokes, no silly plinky-plonky music. I mean, that finished with just the cast, pretty much deadpan, real
1: downer of an ending. It's that very definite. Technically, we won because Earth didn't get destroyed, but the price is maybe a little bit too high for us to call this one a win.
0: Yeah.
1: I think this is maybe why season five is one of my favourites, because it wasn't afraid to give you the occasional okay, all of SG1 is still here, so yay. And any guest stars that character related to are still here, so yay but there's a body count going on around us. We really can't call this one a victory.
0: Yeah, there are plays where they always thought this will be the last season, we can we can kill off people. <laughs> yeah, Sometimes they kill off people, thought, oh, it's weird to have done that. But most of the time when they did it, they they did it for a reason, they did it for impact, and it worked. Hmm. And the Rim and the Tolans served a purpose. They weren't a cornerstone of the Stargate mythology, not as much as the Nox were or the Asgard, but they were... An offshoot of uh, humanity, they were far more advanced. They were, in many ways, as a society, much better than anything that the Earth had. But their technology failed them through other people's technology. Rely on a certain level of technology to protect yourself; it'll always fail you at the end.
1: And again, it sort of harkens back to what we were talking about at the beginning. It's like, yeah, they might not be sort of the cornerstone. You know, they're obviously not Earth. They're not. They're not the Asgard or the Tokra. But they're a big enough name that people who have stuck with the show this long know who they are and know what they represent. And for the ghoul to suddenly be able to trounce them, it's like, okay, this ain't your daddy's go old.
0: Yeah. Something in the vastness of the galaxy has changed. The balance of power has changed. And this is the first little pebble that's (laughs) that's what I've done.
1: And also as well, you've got, there's that realisation that, I mean, Tannis has much said it when he said that by destroying the fleet, he did them a favour. It's like, there's a new Gould on the scene, and we took out the biggest of the system lords, and then we took out the next biggest Goa'uld, who wasn't a system lord, that posed a threat. We've basically paved the way for whoever this is. Oh dear. A lot of this is on us, and I love Anubis in this season, right up until you actually meet Anubis. (laughs) Because when he's just this nameless, or even when you only find out his name... But you never actually see him. He's just this mysterious. He's just this big, scary character, and you know he's a big, scary character because he takes out the Poland, basically cripples the Pokra for a season, and then in the season finale, yeah, okay, when we finally meet him, he's a little bit pantomime, and that only gets worse. But hello, season finale, his ships can withstand. Oh. We can go toe to toe with an Asgard ship.
0: Yeah, that's worrying.
1: It's like <laughs> I haven't been worried about the Goa'uld for a good few seasons. I'm starting to get a little bit worried about him again. Yeah, you're not. You're 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 not a prophet, are you? We're not going to be able to just wipe the floor with you week in, week out. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we'll embarrass you, Jafar, but you're going to be a different kettle of fish.
0: When you look at the big picture, it is a very good way to reinvent an alien species, a threat. Mm. It's something that, if you look at Star Trek, the the Klingons never really got a jump on the Federation technology-wise. They were just more aggressive and more of a bloodlust. The Romulans were always the Romulans. I suppose the biggest one, have you, have you seen Lower Decks?
1: I haven't seen any of Lower Decks yet.
0: Okay. By taking a big bad, or a race, a subset of a race, they reintroduced an alien that we thought we'd taken care of. This is one of the initial steps where the actual capabilities of Anubis are being flexed, and we don't really know it yet. The galaxy doesn't really know it yet. They're going to learn.
1: Ghoul basically stopped being a threat once you've got the Protected Planets Treaty. Yeah. Because, hey, not only can the system lords not touch us, but they have, to in- they have to actively get involved and help us if a rogue gold comes after us. Otherwise, they've got to deal with the Asgard. And they're afraid of the Asgard because the Asgard do some prime PR. <laughs> but all of a sudden, we've got a Gould who basically, yeah, he, can- he might not be able to take on three Asgard ships at once but they can deal with one Asgard ship. We know that the Asgard are basically bluffing the ghoul. They haven't got the ships to enforce the treaty. It
0: makes you wonder if, at some level, a system lord or somebody has gone you know what? We never really see a lot of Asgard battleships, do we? There's that one there and there's that one there, but we never see them together, and occasionally we see that one in that part of the galaxy. And you know what? I don't think there's many Asgard ships in our galaxy at this time. But who'd roll the dice on that? I was
1: about to say, you would not. Even if you were sat opposite Thor at the poker table. (laughs) If you've got anything less than a royal flush, you are not going there, are you?
0: Well, you're looking at his face and thinking he's not giving anything away.
1: So that's why I really like Anubis to start with. Because even though he wasn't referenced that often, when he did something... He did something. Like, you've got, we've wiped out the Tolan. That's one potential ally. Gone. Crippled the Tok'ra. Yeah, Tok'ra are probably going to need us at the moment a hell of a lot more than we need them. And then, as I say, we can can go one-on-one against the Asgard. Um, Face just got scary, folks. And then, as (laughs) I say, they just ruin it by actually having... I think my problem with Anubis is the whole kind of glowy face shield look. Yeah. I mean it would have been a I mean to be honest, however they did it, it would have been a cop out. But if you'd just gone with it's the gold in a big scary cloak and hood, yes, okay, we played that card with Sokar, but given that we only actually saw Sokar in two episodes and then we blew him up, have the whole kind of just I've got a glowy thing, it's like mm. and then when you literally have him basically turn up to so literally go, ha ha, now I shall destroy you you know it's bad when McKay is taking the piss out. <laughs> You
0: got to say that George Lucas really struck gold when he introduced Darth Vader to the world. Uh-huh. He's a big guy dressed in black, and you think, well, it's not a far far cry from a cowl and a cloak. He acted perfectly normal. He walked in, looked around. He didn't do He didn't do the scenery, did he? No. He, worst case, he lifted somebody off by the neck of the feet. Talk. Oh well, never mind. <laughs> you know, it's so it was so indifferent, uh-huh. and that was incredible, terrifying thing about it. He was indifferent to anybody around him.
1: This is what I am here to do. This is what I am going to do. How many of you survive this is entirely down to how many of you decide to be dicks. Yeah, I'll be all right. Don't get in my way. I won't get in yours. You do you, I'll do me.
0: Almost like, you're making me do this. I don't want to do this, but you're making me do this. Oh, he's dead.
1: You, come next. Right, you're making me do this. Which has then made all the more impressive Come Empire... When Even though, obviously, he's referenced in A New Hope, but then when you actually first see the Emperor, and then you suddenly realise that Vader's not the bot. No. He's just an enforcer. So who the hell outranks Vader
0: yeah.
1: that Vader's not just twatting him and taking charge? Who is it that makes Vader get down on one knee willingly? Exactly. And then you wheel out the Emperor fair play to have to try and introduce a character really more or less in your final film obviously it wasn't but we won't go there (laughs) to then introduce someone as the ultimate big bad someone that we're supposed to believe that vader is subservient to and you've got to convince us of this in one film and then when we first see him he is literally an old man on a walking stick (laughs) <laughs> yes. you sit there and you think George, George, George you I appreciate what you've tried to do but you've failed, and then you suddenly realise that, oh no, he really hasn't, because the Emperor is all manner of badass Yep. it's like, I'm not going to wave a light I'm just going to electrocute you from across the room, zap again though, understated I think that's the thing, isn't it it's the calmness to it, it's like Scorpius in Farscape
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Doesn't lose his rag, apart from the very few occasions when he does, and because those instances are so few and far between, when they do happen, they are scary as hell. But it's just all calm and quiet, and that that voice that's almost got a lyrical quality to it. It almost sounds like he's singing every sentence.
0: I've got to watch Varscape again.
1: I have. I did more sort of the last few weeks than normal, but. Farscape falls into the category of me like B five. I can't yeah. really just watch an episode here and there. I can't watch one episode I have to of it. Start at the beginning no. and plow through.
0: Every now and again, I, I put an episode of House on, but Farscape, Babylon five, even Stargate. I don't really want unless it's for the podcast. I don't want to watch just one episode, and that sometimes means I don't get to watch a show for a couple of years. Can't put aside the time to watch it because I've got other things to watch.
1: Can't always commit to a sort of you know five, six, seven, you know, depending on the show, maybe, you know, eight, nine, ten yeah. seasons, especially when we're talking seasons that are sort of 20-episode length. <laughs> yeah. You know, if we're talking six-episode seasons, it's not such a stretch anymore. But, you know, back in the day of twenty, twenty-two episode seasons, it's, that's a commitment. Yeah,
0: that is a lot of television. Mm-hmm. Okay, then, folks, it's getting on a bit now. Time really does fly sometimes when you're recording the podcast.
1: Especially when you've got someone with you who doesn't require a lot to get attractive. I mean, I'm very much the I'll be in the middle of talking. It's like, oh, something shiny. Yeah, exactly. Squirrel.
0: Okay then, folks, that was Between Two Fires. Pretty good episode. As I said at the start, part of an unofficial Toland trilogy. Might be worth watching all three back-to-back. Then again, might not. Why not watch the whole series again? We know a lot of people do. You see that on Twitter timeline. they finish finished watching Stargate, so what do they do? They start again. Tim, thank you very much for joining me and picking an excellent
1: episode. Thank you for having me and putting up with, well,
0: me. <laughs> Last time you were here, you were thinking about coming back into podcasting. Nothing has uh, appeared,
1: but you are playing d I see that on your Twitter. Yeah, to varying degrees of success. Okay, so, you know, quick, quick digression, but well, hey, I have two characters. I have a dwarf that my dice seem to like.
0: Yeah.
1: I recently made a tabaxi that my dice hate. <laughs> to the point that on the first session with her, I think I threw like three critical fails. Yep. It's now got to the point where even my DM is taking the piss about how cursed the character is. <laughs> he deliberately lowers the skill checks, and I still don't clear them. <laughs> it's like she like. Normally, I would say this needs to be a fifteen, Tim. For you, I will make it a ten, and I'm still lucky. Oh, I'm still oh, lucky if I get a four. That's not good. But it's stupid. They're the exact same dice that I use when I play the dwarf. Yeah. You get the occasional bad roll, because that's just the nature of things. The backseat, she is my problem, second child. You know, I had the first one, and everything was smooth sailing. I didn't understand what all the other parents were complaining about. My child's saying, what the hell? Oh, yeah, (laughs) sure, I'll have another one. And this one's Satan. But it's still fun. Oh, still fun, yeah, because you know, it's kind of entertaining that I've got a character <laughs> who's, you know, she's a humanoid cat. She's supposed to be the definition of elegance and grace and finesse. Yeah. And she trips over her own feet more often than not. It's like, mm, yeah, I sort of, in the gifts when I am sort of going live, I use gifts of Catra or Chitara. I'd be better off using Snarf.
0: <laughs> that bad.
1: Less elegant, but far more accurate. the plan was originally to do more on the podcasting thing but then this little thing called 2020 happened yes plans had to change when the person that you podcast with kind of has to work around we can record when i've only got one child present when you've got like a three-month stint when all three children are present 24 hours of every day is kind of priorities
0: Okay then, folks, I'll do a wrap-up offline. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us at stargatearchives.com. Contact us via email, stargatearchives at gmail.com. We are, of course, on Facebook and Tumblr, also on Twitter, at TheGateCast. If you want to listen directly, you can find us listed on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, PodBay, Stitcher and Amazon Music. You'll also find RSS feeds that you can manually put into any podcatcher on our website. And of course, if you do listen to us and the podcatcher as a review or rating system, we'd appreciate any feedback. Thank you everybody for listening during my year-long journey into legend. We're back doing Stargate now. Hopefully I'll have a, a few more guests on over the next few months. I've got some time off over, over Christmas, so hopefully I'll get a couple of extra people on during then. Uh, Okay, then, folks, thank you very much for joining us. Tim, pleasure as always. Again, thank you for having me. Take care, everybody. I've been Mike. Bye.
1: Bye bye.